Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. And my name is Marshall. How you doing, Marshall? Doing okay. Yeah, me too. Enjoying a cup of coffee? <laughs> Where did you get that? Uh, I I got it. It was the the last bit in the pot. Oh, was it? It was. <laughs> so when I said the pot was empty, I'm like, oh, I don't really need it. And you're like, neither did I. You were referencing the full cup of coffee that you had. I was. <laughs> That's great. I had already drunk from it. That's fair. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm enjoying living this lie that we're in. <laughs> What's the lie? It is uh, 14 degrees mm. and sunny. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow it's going to be 17 and sunny. Mm-hmm. In Fahrenheit, that is, uh, do the math. No, 70? No. Something like that. It's nice. Mm-hmm. But it's a lie. It's a lie. By the time this drops, the truth will have fallen, mm-hmm. and it'll be cold again. Yeah, the truth will have fallen in the form of snowflakes, I'm but sure. But sometimes... Delusion is bliss. <laughs> so before we get started, mm-hmm. this is a church history podcast. It is. We talk a lot about church history. It's kind of the point. For that reason. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I feel like there's some miscellaneous history missing. Okay. I, 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 I did just a quick rabbit trail okay. on other things going on around the world. Nice. Just to give a little bit of global context. Nice. I like that. So here's some fun stuff. Okay. In this time period, we're talking early 4th century through the 5th century, mm-hmm. because what we've been doing is a lot of meanwhile. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of been camped out here for a while and sort of going back and forth within the same time period Okay, for probably about, what would you say, three weeks? Sure. Uh, in this time period in India, they invent a game called chess. Cool. I'm glad you like it. Uh the compass as a navigation tool is invented. Magnetic compass. Wow. The mariner's compass. Yeah. This is a great one for anyone who's visited Stratford in the summer. Paddle wheel boats. Oh, really? <laughs> I know it probably means more like the steamship kind of thing, but I, I just, you know, those little paddle wheel boats. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. From the time period. Uh, the Fothark alphabet in England. Starts to show up. This is a very primitive mm. alphabet, but mm-hmm. it shows formalization of language in the area. Sure. To be fair, this doesn't mean the English alphabet. No. It doesn't look anything like our alphabet. No. Uh, at this time, their English language is divided into into ages. Mm. There's the Proto-Germanic, Old English, Middle English, Early Modern, and Modern. Mm. For anyone that cares. This is the movement from Proto-Germanic into Old English. Nice. Now, when people think about Old English and they're like, oh, like Shakespeare. No. 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 Shakespeare is considered the very end of early modern to modern English. Yeah. Proto-Germanic and Old English are... Probably not even being spoken in England yet. Can't they... (laughs) Right? Like, that's a thing. They... they, They're they're not... It's not a thing that you could read. Right, right. Any more than you could read any other foreign language. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and to be fair, at this point, it's getting... It's kind of at such an early stage that when we say the 4th and 5th century, Mm -hmm. scholars on it would argue, well, it's still Proto-Germanic. It's kind of old English. So there's a long way 
mm-hmm. before English becomes a thing or becomes intelligible to us who speak English. Right. Because but the people who would become the English aren't even in England yet. Or they're co- they're get, just getting there now. Right. The Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> uh, and so the birth of the English language, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. its conceptions are beginning. Cool. Uh, Attila the Hun. Yeah, is doing his thing. He's gonna make he's gonna make an appearance in our church history bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in the Americas, we are at the the rising point of the Aztec, the Mayas, and the Incas. Okay. And the capital of the Aztec Empire, uh, Tenochtitlan, mm-hmm. is at somewhere between two hundred to three hundred and fifty thousand people. Wow. We're talking modern day Kitchener and Waterloo combined. Wow. That's crazy. I had no idea that things expanded that significantly down there. And for everyone listening outside of Ontario who says, I don't know Kitchener-Waterloo, look it up. <laughs> it's roughly 350,000 people. There you go. Yep, there you go. So just some cool. uh, fun, fun history. We ought to do that more often. Fun yeah. historical facts mm-hmm. wrapping up around the age. Yeah, I like it. I like it. And interestingly, when you look for famous people from the 4th and 5th century... It's all church history. <laughs> it's like, it's all church history and Attila the Hun. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. So as we've been discussing, and so we won't belabor this, but back at the center of the quote unquote Christian universe, at least at this point in Rome, uh, it's essentially a pale shadow of what, what it once was, right? We, we saw Rome get sacked in the last episode, first of Several Excuse times. me while I sip my coffee. Oh, don't even. But what we have are just kind of a succession in Rome of weak <sighs> emperors. <laughs> weak emperors dominated by generals vying for power, uh, trying to, you know, push back the barbarian tribes, usually unsuccessfully. Um, civil war, all sorts of weird things going on. And then come the Huns. Mm-hmm. So you dropped Attila. So, so people, this is... People may or may not know this, but the Huns were originally from Central Asia. They were a nomadic horse people. Um, Attila, we know. Yeah. But his father and his brother were also key. Yeah, they were big. Yeah. His brother, Bleda. I can't remember his dad's name. Anyways, you could tell me if you want. Um, But they have moved out of Asia into Europe. And so what we when we've been talking about these barbarian invasions of Rome, what's happening is it's people coming into Rome who've been kicked off their land by the Huns. Because the Huns are just steamrolling their way west. They were horse archers, essentially. Most of their army were horse archers. And at the time, and actually for like the next thousand years, horse archers were the premier military unit. Mm -hmm. Like to just be able to harass the enemy. These guys, they could shoot shoot, uh, bows off the back of horses while sitting backwards. Or they could like lean all the way back in the saddle and shoot. But they would time their shots when the horse's four hooves were off the ground, so that it wouldn't be disturbed by the movement underneath them. Like, I, I'm nerding out a little bit, but horse archers are crazy, and the Huns were the best at the time. If you if you want to do a modern equivalency, mm. this is kind of the jet fighter. Oh yeah, of their age, right? Oh, yeah, because they're able to come in and out quickly, sweep in and out. And hit from a moderate distance. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to, it's not hand-to-hand. No. Right? So in a more limited way, it's kind of that, yeah. that fourth century version of... Oh, yeah. 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 So um, there's, they have these massive campaigns of destruction. I mean, 
just countless cities just burned to the ground. And they're fighting with the Eastern Empire and then, you know, beat them up a bit and get some some hefty payments. Then they turn their attentions west and it's just they're they're just picking fights with everyone. Um, they actually ally with Rome for a bit, uh, very briefly, until Attila receives a message from a young lady named Honoria, who was the uh, emperor's sister. And she was to be married. Her brother, the emperor, had an arranged marriage set up, and she really, really didn't want to marry this guy. So much so that she promised Attila the Hun half the Roman Empire if he could get her out of the marriage. And that was Attila's opportunity to march on Rome, you know, for the dignity of a lady, right? I, I don't know how much he actually cared about her, but it was, that was his opening to march on Rome. How do you feel if you're that husband? <laughs> that husband to be? <laughs> oh, man. And someone's like, I don't really want to marry you. And you're like, you know what? She'll learn to love me. Yeah. She offered up half the empire <laughs> to Attila the Hun, which would be the slaughter of her own family. Oh, boy. To this, I mean, terrorist. Essentially. <laughs> group. Nomadic terrorist group. Yeah. And uh, that's how badly she doesn't want to marry you. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, pretty... don't, I don't think she's going to get used to you, buddy. I don't think she's going to warm up to the idea. No. I don't think she just needs a little time. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> that, my friend, is rejection. That's rejection at a whole nother level. Yeah. Um, Attila doesn't conquer the city of Rome, though. He, outside the walls, he's met by three envoys that were sent by the emperor to convince him to turn back. And there's a lot of circumstances going on. There's famine in the land. There's disease. There's all sorts of things. But one of these envoys who convinces him to turn back was Leo I, who was the bishop of Rome. Hold on. The envoys meet where? Uh, Mantua. Look at a map and realize how deep. Attila gets into Rome. Oh yeah, before they convince him to go back. Oh yeah, like it's yeah, he's knocking on the door. We're not talking the empire. Yeah, we're talking the city. Yeah, and the thing too is like when when Rome was sacked earlier, it was by you know Christian barbarians who like took a bunch of stuff and killed a few people. Had Attila taken Rome, uh, he would have just burned it to the ground. It would have been a whole right. whole different level of destruction. But he ends up turning back and uh, and. Bishop of Rome, Leo I, is lauded as being the cause of this, as convincing Attila the Hun to turn back. Uh, I don't know if that counts towards miracles in the Roman Catholic tradition, but <laughs> maybe. So that doesn't get instituted till later, but in the common day, they or that in the current day, they would have said yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we can talk about Leo for a minute here. Leo was the Bishop of Rome from 440 to 461. And he was the first one to be called the Great, which is, he's not the last one to be called the Great, but he's the first one to be mm -hmm. called the Great. Um, you know, and he did some things. I mean, he opposed heresy. Um, he did a lot of charity work. Rome's struggling. Think about this. With all these wars happening, Rome is just being filled with refugees, right? Refugees from these invaders when, you know, when they come in and they, you know, burn the countryside, these people are fleeing. And we can see today, even in our modern context, with all the abundance and all the resources and technology we have, how burdensome a refugee crisis can be. We're seeing that happen in Eastern Europe right now. Right. This is exponentially worse. 
it just because they just don't have the resources mm-hmm. to 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 manage this right so he he plays a role in that um there is a shift that happens under leo um we could say that he is at least in our kind of modern understanding he's a potential candidate for being like the first pope pope you know yeah, I mean? and it seems he saw it that way. Oh, yeah. That, that the idea that every other church is under the Church of Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he is the head of the Church of Rome. And so, therefore, he holds a responsibility over all churches. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to be foreign from some of the things that he had to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in my research, like, um, some of the scholars were talking about how, like, that term for Pope or Papa— or papas or whatever was could have been used for any bishop up until that point, and then Leo essentially says, "No, that's just me. Mm-hmm. I am the Papa of Papas, or whatever you want to call it." So, which is which is interesting because in so many other elements, most every other element, he's very orthodox. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And by and by all the sources I've looked into, a great pastor. Mm-hmm. And teacher, yeah. defender of truth in the church, mm-hmm. removing heresy. So in a lot of ways, he's exactly the kind of guy that you would want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he institutes this new idea around the Bishop of Rome that turns out to really hurt the church yeah, in because, the long run. Because but, not everyone who holds that office is going to have the same quality of character. Yeah, right? that's that's the that's the reality, right? Like you create this new office, this new centralized power, and hey, if you're being faithful and you love the people you're leading and you're doing all these good things, that's great. But what about the next guy or the guy after that? Right? right. And I think that's why it's important to mention that because mm-hmm. as Protestants, we we tend to look at the papacy as a big problem mm-hmm. and we would look at someone who would institute it and say, I see myself as a, like, okay, this guy has serious problems and mm-hmm. power grabs and all that. But no, it's almost a unique thing. Mm-hmm. It's almost a unique statement within a world of good statements yeah, that he would have to make. And you think about the series of crises going on, particularly in the Western Roman Empire, but also in the East, right? Like, you know, cities falling and invading armies and famines and all these things that are going on and all these, like, theological divisions and heresies popping up. And... It's like, you know, when when you're in that kind of scenario, you sometimes kind of need someone to kind of step up and mm-hmm. take the reins of things a little bit, right? Right? Like, you can't... That's not a scenario where you want to have too many cooks in the kitchen. Right. Right? So, there's a sense in which the historical context, it makes sense. I'm not saying he's theologically justified in doing what he did, but it makes sense. Sure. Right? Um, yeah. So, he... I, I don't know that I would go so far as to say it makes sense. But I could see where he came to that conclusion. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, that's what I mean, right? Okay. Like, like putting okay. it. Yeah, I I was just saying it seemed like there for a moment <laughs> you were about to give your blessing. No, on, no, on the formation of the papal order. No, oh, no, 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 no. I I'm just all right. No writing letters to heritage about how I'm. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things he does, um, right around the time, actually, this whole. Um, showdown with Attila the Hun happens is he calls a council in Chalcedon in 451. The council of Chalcedon is really important because it's connected to actually two theological controversies, two kind of unhealthy extremes 
in how we understand Christ. In fact, when we we've talked about a lot of these councils that we've had so far, I mean, everything is kind of about like we talked about. There's some dealing with like the lapse, but there's a lot of it about the person of Christ. That's been the biggest divider, I guess, within the church is trying to understand who Christ is and how does he relate to God, which was in the Arian controversy that we mm-hmm. talked about, right? Um, and you know, the, the question being, is he co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial? of the same essence as God? And the answer was yes. But now we get into this idea of, okay, Christ is divine, but Christ is also a human being. And how does that work together? Right. Yeah, and, and I think this is this is a very classic moment where people who have grown up in the church can be asked this question by people who are trying to disprove, or, or maybe not even trying to disprove or discredit Christianity, but just sincerely asking the question. Mm. And all of a sudden we get hit with, I don't know, I've never really thought about it, or yeah. I can't explain it. Mm-hmm. And in, in such a way that becomes a crisis of faith, or can grow to become a crisis of faith moment. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of studying church history is to realize, hey, these questions have been asked for a very long time, mm-hmm. and we've been dealing with them for a long time, and the answers we give are not just things that people thought of in the moment mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so this is in my opinion this is one of those great moments where studying church history affects my confidence in the faith today yeah no that's great yeah so i'll i'll, I'll maybe give a super brief sk- like one sentence description and maybe you can go into greater detail because you have the big the big theology books. I do. I've got two of them. <laughs> so one kind of end of the spectrum, which had kind of already been addressed, but kind of resurfaces in, in this in this uh, council, is Nestorianism, which kind of viewed the divine nature and the human natures of Christ um, as not as just being kind of like loosely related persons. So there's like they're almost kind of separate, like. Like the son of the divine son of God and the human being, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, are connected but not intimately. All right. I don't agree that that's exactly what Nestorianism is. Okay. And here's here's where I think there's confusion. Okay. To the winner goes the spoils. Sure. And they become the authors of history. Mm-hmm. Right? So reading reading Greg Allison on the subject, mm-hmm. uh, he gives a little background into why Nestorius needs to make a statement mm-hmm. about this kind of a thing. It's not like he's just sitting there one day, you know, doing his monastic thing, and all of a sudden it pops into his head, and he's like, hey, I got an idea. The issue is the church at the time has made common the statement, Mary, the mother of God. Right. And Nestorius is going, yeah, I don't like how that feels. mm Mary, the mother of God. Right. I'm, I'm not down with that. Um, that's too much. And so this is the way Allison puts it. Uh, he says, on one hand, to deny Mary as Theotokos, or the mother of God, the bearer of God, mm-hmm. is, is the way it's perfectly translated, would fly in the face of a tradition of traditional church belief. On the other hand, Nestorius could not allow that God had a mother and that God was convinced, or or, I'm sorry, conceived and nurtured in a womb for nine months 
and that God was born, and that God suffered and died. Right. Right? In the same way, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God. Mm-hmm. The Word was God. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't say in that a, a uniform message of Jesus was God, right? There's with God mm-hmm. and was God. So mm-hmm. in the presence of divine yet divine kind of a thing. Uh, and and the stories is just looking at this going, mother of God is too much. Mm. And so it seems like from this, the stories would go on to say there has to be something of the fact that she is the contributor to his human nature mm-hmm. and God is the contributor to his divine nature, the two natures. Right. But because the common statement from on high was Mary, mother of God, those people came out and said, well, if you believe that, then you also believe this, 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 and this. Right, okay. And they accuse him of 12 different things, right, where he was just answering this statement. Right. And they call them the 12 anathemas, which are the 12 curses, right? These things that mm-hmm. he would say that are just cannot be said. Now, in his defense of this, well, for one, he doesn't really defend it too much. Mm. They kind of come after him, mm-hmm. and he's just like, whatever, and he just disappears back into monasticism. <laughs> uh, but they, they won't let it go, and, and mm. he's got some people that are kind of on board with him, which is mm. where the ism gets attached to the end of his name, those people mm-hmm. that are on board with him. Mm-hmm. And they keep up the fight, and in explaining it, things kind of go left. And then eventually, they go after Nestorius again and exile him. Right. Right? Uh, so, Which, as a monk, it's like not the end of the world. Right. So, <laughs> it's, right. It's just... Instead of being over there, you're going to go over here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not to say that I I agree with Nestorianism, mm-hmm. right? That's that's not where I'm headed with it. Mm-hmm. What I what I want to say is a lot of when you get a lot of people in the room, you start hearing everyone's ideas, and maybe the idea you came in with, you're like, oh, I see where I was wrong because what you said and the way you said it makes so much more sense to mm-hmm. me, right? We've been doing that for so many thousands of years that we've developed a way of talking about this. Mm. And I, I think, given that same privilege, mm-hmm. Nestorius would arguably have a different way of wording what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. But I think the where he starts from is innocent enough. I don't like the concept of Mary, Mother of God. Mm-hmm. And if you were to ask me to explain it, mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have gone too completely different Mm-hmm. From, yeah, but you know what? Like, she only birthed the human faculty, mm. right? Not the divine nature. Mm. And then and then if my detractors are like, whoa, you just said that there's two natures of God. I'd be like, no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. But I can see where you got that. Mm-hmm. This is... Yeah, so, the, so I think the distinction is like, we're talking... And again, it's going to sound like... like we're just getting into semantics here, but for for a faith that is founded on a book, words matter. Yep. And I think the distinction is nature versus person, mm-hmm. because that's what ends up happening. Because what ends up happening is that the the decision is the 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 final decision is very careful in how it uses two different terms: that of 
the nature and mm-hmm. that of the person. Um, so I think that's kind of maybe where, and maybe even if Nestorius didn't start there in its expression, it became two persons. Jesus is two persons. And that's a problem. Yeah. And that's where I asked the question, are those from the writings of Nestorius? Or is that... Or are those from the writings of those people who are saying, if you say that, you're saying this. Right, Let's right. be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Perfectly honest, and let's throw some shade on our own camp. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Most of what Reformed Baptist thinkers believe about Arminianism yeah. is written by Reformed thinkers. Right. Right? Yeah. And, and all of those but this could lead to this or this mm-hmm. leads to this. And so this is what they believe. Yeah. A lot of those things aren't affirmed by Arminians. No, or at least not Arminius. Right. Maybe in, in more modern expressions of people who would bear that title, but not necessarily where he was at. Right. Yeah. And so, and so there becomes this sort of like false equivalent of, yeah, well, what you mean is that and you're like, well, that's not what I meant. Well, like, well, that's where it goes to. So that's what you meant. Right. Right. Uh, right. So th- I'm not saying that is the case. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying when I, from the limited reading that I've done, let's be fair. You and I like history. Mm-hmm. We're studying church history for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I've done classes in church history. Mm-hmm. Neither one of us are church historians no, no. in a way that we would be, you know, credentialed PhDs. Right. In the work that I've done for this, I, I have a question of how much of that is imposed upon him and how much of it was actually what he was saying. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so I do want to give a little bit of space to that. And yeah. I also want to say, like like you said, people hear this and they're like, this is nonsense discussion, <laughs> right? Like this is, it, in some ways it's the ineffable. It's, it's the unexplainable mm. nature of God. Mm-hmm. And what we're, what we need to do is know that it is, but not necessarily have we been given enough to know how it works. Yeah, I think there's a, a distinction between, you know, trying to explain something as much as we can mm-hmm. um, versus explaining something in such a way where we come to conclusions that are false because of what has been revealed to us. And I think that is kind of that's the that's kind of where you're tr- you're trying to tread, right? Is to, to avoid that ladder to say, like, OK, how can we define this? We, we understand we can't fully wrap our minds around it, but how far can we go in defining this to avoid falling into problematic understandings, which could could result in other things? Right. That's and that, that's not a necessarily a, a, a bad thing, but we mm-hmm. just have to be. We have to be self-aware, I guess, in how and how we're handling these subjects. And it shows up in the practical. Sure. In some ways. Mm-hmm. Right. So. In the Reformation, Calvin and Luther are going to differ on this, Mm. right? uh, Calvin is going to say that there's the two natures, his human nature and his divine nature, coexist without either of the two affecting the other, Mm. right? So they're, they're common, yet his... His divine nature is in no way limited by his humanity, and his humanity is no way given a supernatural thing that would cause it to be less than human. I kind of stand with that a little bit mm. there, Calvin. Uh, the two are parallel tracks. Okay. Whereas Luther 
would say, no, they do interweave in such a way that his human nature is a superhuman, supernatural Mm. humanity Mm. uh, and is granted some of the attributes of divinity. Right. Right? Why does that matter? Physical presence at communion. Right. How can a limited physical being be present Hmm. in the... I'm going to say the Catholic and the Lutheran ideal, even though I know that... There's distinctions, but... They're, yes, they're it's not transubstantiation, than, but it's close. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's painfully close. It's painfully close. Yeah, uh, but but the way but Luther needs that, mm-hmm. the Catholic Church needs that mm-hmm. in order to say, well, how can a physical presence of God be multiplied, one omnipresent mm-hmm. on this earth, and two multiple times over, mm-hmm. right? Well, the divine nature is affected by, mm-hmm. right? Well, how do, how does the to those two coincide. So yeah. these things do play out in a way that affect the practical operations of the church and how we see other things. Sure. Um, and yeah, maybe that's theological nerddom, but welcome to the show. Yeah. Well, speaking of nerddom, there's one other word before we actually get to the answer of what the Council of Chalcedon um, stated. The the kind of the, the other, the other theological persuasion that was, being circulated was something called uh, monophysitism. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that with confidence. Sure, monophysitism. Why not? Which was which these guys proposed that in Christ there is only one nature without any distinction. It's divine Son of God that 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 is kind of essentially the, the to to speak of Christ as having divine nature and and human nature is faulty and it's a divine human nature or however you want to kind of articulate that. So, so there's kind of these things floating around. And so what the council of Chalcedon comes to is something that is known today, a theological term called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is essentially this, that Christ is some people would say fully or truly, truly God and truly man or fully God and fully man united in one person. And what was interesting about when you were talking about Calvin and Luther is that where, what they came to at Chalcedon would actually, um, both Calvin and Luther might disagree with what they, what they stated mm-hmm. in different ways. Because they said that this union is without confusion, mixture, separation, or division, each nature retaining its own attributes. Which, which is, is more Calvinistic than Lutheran. Sure, but also no yeah anyways but no separation or division either Mm -hmm. so it's like there's like this whole aspect to it and essentially they're they're basing this definition on what they know to be true even though it is still there's still a mysterious aspect of this right so they're Mm -hmm. they're saying look like we don't want to say that there is confusion in this we don't want to say that there's division in this um but there is Christ is truly God and truly man. Um, you know, yeah. Christ upholds the universe in his divine nature, right? But he was able to be our substitute and to die on our behalf uh, and to be raised again as a human, right? I mean, God could not die. God can't die. Right. Right? So so there, he has to be both. Um, he has to be both and not in a way that is confused or as one singular superhuman nature. It's got to be, it's got to be 
truly God, truly man. That, that's where they came to anyways. And um, some churches disagreed with this. In fact, um, even today, there's the Oriental Orthodox Church, um, which is kind of a collection of churches, some Coptic churches, Armenian Orthodox churches, that uh, that don't agree with this. And they, they stick with Christ as one nature, and that's, that's, their, that's their position. And um, it separates them, I guess, from, from the majority of Christendom. Yeah, and and Paul ends regards this as something that's necessary for us to understand salvation, mm. right? He he says both natures are necessary for redemption. As man, Christ could uh, represent man mm-hmm. and die as a man. As God, the death of Christ could have infinite value, mm. sufficient to provide redemption for the sins of the world, mm. right? Uh, like in Hebrews, when we talk about the once and for all sacrifice, mm-hmm. uh, yet the priest from among us. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it deep, <laughs> deep and powerful conversations mm-hmm. going way back. Yeah, way, I, way back. I yeah. love it. Yeah, no, I, so do I. So that's kind of what's going on in the mid-400s in Rome and in, you know, the heart of the Roman Empire, these big questions and these big developments of the papacy and that sort of thing. But out on the fringes, things are happening too. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's actually kind of interesting because uh, tomorrow is, tomorrow from our recording, not from when this drops, is St. Patrick's Day. Right. And so St. Patrick uh, lives and ministers and dies nowhere remotely close to where any of this has happened. Right. Um, he's out on the fringes. And so I think it's worth kind of talking about something that's going on at the, at least for in the Roman consciousness, the edge of the world for them. And at the edge of the world, we have Britain and Ireland. We have the British Isles. And Christianity had probably arrived there early on, probably amongst Roman soldiers or settlers. Um, there wasn't a significant presence, but by the time of origin in Tertullian, they're acknowledging that there are Christians in Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's still pretty early. Yeah. yeah. Um, persecution of Christians there wasn't as significant. when we. Uh, I think during the Diocletian persecution, that was the really bad one right before the end. Uh, we remember that like where Constantine and his father ruled was in Britain, so they didn't get it as bad there. Um, and Christianity continued to spread, and there was the people there were Romano-British, which meant they were ethnically Celtic but culturally Roman. But what happens is as Rome is going through this decline, uh, the Roman legions are called away from Britain. And in 407, there's a, a, a guy who, another Constantine, although not directly related to the first one, who takes the legions away in an attempt to try and conquer Rome. He isn't successful and the legions never come back. Right. And so now they're left to defend themselves without an army. And Britain is ripe for the plucking, and there's these invaders from Northern Europe, the Saxons, the Angles, these people who spoke that Proto-Germanic early English. Saxon invasions. Yeah. Some exciting British Isle history there. Yeah, I, I, this is my favorite type of history. Um, so essentially what happens is they, they kind of come in, in in waves, and they come to stay. They, they had already, they you know, previously they had come to steal people's stuff, but or steal people as slaves, but mm-hmm. they came to stay this time. And so 
the Christians in Britain are kind of confined to a couple little pockets and, and Wales is kind of the major pocket. Um, and so there you kind of have this, this continuing center of Christianity, but it's, it's cut off to a large degree from Roman influence. Um, and so what's developed there is still part of the Catholic church, but kind of somewhat distinct, decentralized, um, and you get kind of this this Celtic Christianity, which isn't kind of a totally different thing, but it has its own flavor. It does, yeah, yeah, and and that's why even in the iconography, Celtic is very identifiable, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, when you look at Roman Christianity and and the the icons, the pictures, the paintings that they use, they develop through the Middle Ages. Uh, you can identify very quickly what is Celtic, mm-hmm. you know, the swirls and crosses with wing, kind of winged ends. Mm-hmm. I guess that's called a serif, right? On In a font, it would be called a serif. I think, yeah, I think so. And uh, and then, you know, lots of circles. Yep. Celtics look. like circles around their crosses. They do. Uh, and, and swirly, ke- circles and swirly lines. <laughs> that's Celtic art for you. Yep. And I have just offended uh, all of our Celtic <laughs> listeners um but but they're so identifiable because there's not a lot of intermingling mm-hmm. yeah You're yeah right. there's there's no influence which will become even more profound mm-hmm. as the papacy rises yeah and things become more top to bottom uniform yeah uh the the celts and on the british isles they'll be protected from all that in mm-hmm. some ways mm-hmm. um but yeah in some ways, too, it's not for the better. Right. They're also isolated from a lot of the councils. Yep. Where the discussions about what is orthodoxy and how does it work mm-hmm. are going to take place. They show up to some of the early, early councils. But there is going to be that period of isolation. Yeah. Where they're kind of surrounded by by um, pagan raiders on all sides. Mm-hmm. And there's one notable person who grew up under this kind of Celtic Christianity, and his name was Patricus, or Patrick. And Patrick was born to a Christian family. His father was a wealthy citizen, deacon in the church. His grandfather might have been a priest, uh, but Patrick was not a believer. You know, he was that. You know, he was that church kid who gets dragged to church mm-hmm. and just like plays on his phone during the sermon the whole time or something. That he doesn't was, want to be there. I mean, how many, <laughs> how many depictions, those tapestries have you seen with Patrick on his phone? Right. <laughs> it's just common. <laughs> but in any case, he was not, uh, he was not too interested in the faith. Um, and then at 16 years old, he's captured by Irish pirates. That is an awesome statement. Probably not for him in the moment. no, <laughs> But just Irish pirates? But just the idea that he was captured by Irish pirates? Yeah. Like yeah. when you when you sit down when we're in eternity mm. and we're sitting amongst the church fathers that preceded us, mm-hmm. the we're talking like prophets, Old Testament prophets, apostles, and everyone's telling their stories. Mm-hmm. And Patrick gets to play the Irish pirate card. <laughs> And nobody else does. Yeah. No, it's pretty awesome. So he is captured, taken back to Ireland, and he's enslaved there. Um, The Irish were notorious for just grabbing people and making them into slaves. So he worked as a shepherd. um, 
And while he's enslaved, spending this time alone amongst the sheep, is, I mean, the biblical imagery is like I was going to say, he goes thick. from shepherd to shepherd. I mean, it's thick, mm. right? So he begins praying to God and is, you know, according to his own account, converted while he is enslaved in Ireland, taking care of sheep. And, you know, has some kind of baseline of Christianity that he grew up under, but, I mean, wouldn't have access to any scriptures. Wouldn't have access. There were no other Christians there. Right. Completely pagan land. Um, Which, you know what is a great reminder for parents, especially parents who struggle, mm. right, with their kids not following in the faith? Yeah. Hey, you know what? This is the second time in two episodes that we've talked about kids who were raised in church, rejecting church. Mm-hmm later becoming powerful figures. Oh yeah. Augustine and Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. You don't even you don't even need like it's just one name because they're that influential. You know the who they are. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so towards the end of his enslavement of 6 years, he believes to hear a voice telling him that he would soon go home and that a ship would be ready for him, so he flees and travels 200 miles on foot and gets to a port where he convinces a ship captain to return him home. And there's a whole story. And again, some of the, some of the stuff with Patrick too, like, you know, we're trusting the source. There's some, there's some things, there's some things that happen in the life. Some lure. There's, there's some lore. Yeah, for sure. Um, but once he gets home, um, he decides to go to France to advance his studies in the faith. And he's ordained there. And he believes to have a vision. And his vision is actually very similar to one that, that Paul has. When Paul writes about seeing a vision of the Macedonian, and that kind of prompts him to go to that land where there had been no churches, mm-hmm. um, he kind of has that same kind of thing of, of, of you know the Irish beckoning him to their land. These people who once enslaved him, right? Which is significant, yeah, because this is sort of like mosaic in that idea that he was wanted in this land as mm-hmm. an escaped slave. Oh yeah, would he go back? Yeah. Which I mean, Mos. It's different in a way because Moses wasn't an escaped slave, but a wanted man. Yeah. Yeah. So he does. And the thing to remember about Ireland at this point, Ireland was never conquered by the Romans. Mm -hmm. Ireland had always been its own thing. The wild lands, like just very different, very separate, very foreign to, um, to the rest of the world. But he goes back there with probably a good handle on the Irish language, um, which probably would have been different than what, Patrick spoke wherever he grew up. They're not sure it's Wales or England or somewhere. Um, and so he goes back as a missionary and he's not well received initially, but over time people start listening to his preaching and he claims in his memoirs to have personally baptized thousands, like thousands of people. And, and this sounds outrageous and ridiculous until you realize that within a very short period of time, Ireland has churches and monasteries and orders of monks and priests and are raising up missionaries to send them to Scotland and them to England to convert the Anglo-Saxons. Mm-hmm. And so what you get is this like amazing thing where you have, okay, foreign invaders come and they push the Christians into this like tiny area and then, you know, and they're being harassed on all sides. And then this kid gets taken as a slave. He ends up being converted while in slavery. He goes back to the Irish converts them, then they raise up missionaries and go convert the people who like who started this whole process. And it's just this cycle of of, you know, God using these terrible circumstances to bring about his own glory, right? And to save the lost of 
multiple nations and peoples. Um, yeah, and and if you look at his story, like his story in some ways is very unique, but in some ways it it bears resemblance to Joshua, uh, not Joshua, uh, Joseph. Okay, yeah. Moses, yeah. David, mm-hmm. Peter, right? Like all of these. Yeah, it's it's an incredible story. My favorite part of his lure, because you know, you always have these lures and the miracles <laughs> that go with it. How do you feel about the whole snake thing? <laughs> so I was reading up on that, and it was like a noted thing in like previous writings where like somebody had written like, "Yeah, there aren't snakes in Ireland." <laughs> And, uh, but apparently he banished all the snakes from Ireland. And I've heard some people say that like, that's like code for like the Druids. Like he essentially like ended Druidic practice in Ireland. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's cool. It's a cool story. Yeah. Doubt it happened. (laughs) They're pretty sure that snakes never lived in Ireland. They didn't have snakes there. But it's one of the things that's attached to him, right? Like there are no snakes because... Patrick prayed yeah. them away. Yeah, even like the using the like the shamrock clover to explain the Trinity. Patrick doesn't write about that. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't say, "Oh, and then I grabbed a clover." Like that was like that was a story that was like written, like not even in the Middle Ages, like later than that. Mm-hmm. Somebody's like, "Here's a cool story about Patrick and clovers." It's like not even he didn't even do that. <laughs> so. Yeah, and inevitably, someone's going to say, "Hey, I listened to the podcast, and you know what it made me think of." It made me think of that YouTube video. <laughs> Lutheran satire, St. Patrick, the Trinity. Watch it for yourself. Yeah. No, it's awesome. It's hilarious. Yeah. So what I what I love about this story is like, okay, so at, at the at the at the end of the world or the known world at this time, right? God is just moving in significant ways. Right? And and the British Isles will end up being a center for Christianity. Like as we move through history, it's going to become a really important place, mm-hmm. um, particularly towards the Reformation. Um, and God is kind of, again, he's establishing his kingdom in these places um, through, you know, means that we wouldn't expect and through people that we wouldn't expect. Right. Um, and it's not by sword. It's not by force. Like these are like the invaders who subjugate the Christians are converted to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it happens. It happens again in, in British history later on. Like it's just it's amazing how it happens. Yeah. And, and the thing that really touches me about these stories is when we read in scripture, we read about the spread to Asia. Mm. Right. And so it's always this eastward spread that we get westward as far as Rome Paul's plans to go to Spain are kind of a known thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't come from any of those places, mm-hmm. right? My heritage is the British Isles. Mm-hmm. And this is the beginnings of what would eventually be my people, for lack of a better word, sure. coming to that kind of faith, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, so in some ways, it's kind of an our story. Sure. Just because of you and I ethnically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, whereas if we were African, it would have been that uh, those yeah. movements into Carthage yep. and, and that sort of thing. If we were Asian, it would have been in written in Scripture, the, the spread mm-hmm. eastward, mm-hmm. Um, those kinds of things. But because of who we are, 
this you and I specifically, mm-hmm. this becomes a bit of our story. Yeah, which is um, a cool thing. Yeah, it is. Other than Patrick, other than the Celts, um, I don't have a whole. You have Columba. Oh, Columba. Yeah. So Columba is one of these. So not long after Patrick, Columba, Columba is one of these guys who then is raised up in Ireland and goes to Scotland, right? So again, it's just kind of that 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 circle of missions that I talked about before and um, founding monasteries. And I mean, what's crazy is these these sol- oftentimes these solitary monks go into these lands, and these people are hostile people. Mm-hmm. They're they're brutal, violent people. And sometimes they're like single-handedly just like moving huge numbers of people. I mean, obviously, it's the spirit working through them, but it's like these fantastic, fantastic stories. And even if you, you know, you, you look, you read the stories and you're like, okay, there's some features that might be embellishments or whatever. The fact that God used a relatively small number of individuals to make these significant changes with people like Columba and Mungo and others, it's... uh it's fantastic. It's fantastic to see what what God can do through a few faithful people. Yeah, nice. Well, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. Take care. See you next time.